Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dell, and today I don't have Pete Coleman with me because um, this is the first episode uh, that I'm recording from California, and he will be with me usually. I'm about to go to back to Prague in two weeks, and we'll, we'll record a bunch of shows, and, and um, eventually we'll do it over Skype, but right now uh, we've just been procrastinating too long. It's been over a month since I recorded, so here we go, and one more quick announcement is that I have a new show I started. Actually, it's a show from Der Budla, the guy I kept mentioning on the Faust episode when I went to uh, Wittenberg near Berlin. And he has a show called The Secret Cabinet in German, and the content is so phenomenally good. It's basically, the concept is it's on uh, historical artifacts that are in libraries that back in the 18th, 19th century uh, was thought a little bit too kind of vulgar for ladies and gentlemen of society. So the museums had them, but kind of locked away because of pornographic nature or, you know, vulgarity or, or whatever. But really interesting artifacts. And so I thought this would be great if it were also in English. And so now it is. Secret-cabinet.com. Uh, go check it out. It's strange stuff. You're just going to have to go go see it. Uh, this episode is on Johann Rudolf Glauber probably pronounced like Glauber in English, but that's not how it's pronounced. And he lived from 1604 to 1670. Uh, so again, golden age of alchemy. And he was German-Dutch. And there's kind of a pattern here from, from one or two episodes, at least, that uh, the Dutch kind of had some really interesting ideas in this time. And Glauber fits right in there. And that's why I was kind of excited to do this episode. Because of him doing things like synthesizing materials, etc., some historians of science have kind of described him as maybe the first, one of the first chemical engineers, and not like an alchemical engineer with like pseudoscience sort of um, experiments mixed in and, and other weird beliefs, but, but really a straight up chemical engineer um, in, in the sense of the word that, that we mean it these days. For instance, he, um, his discovery of sodium sulfate in 1625 kind of led to it actually having a nickname being called uh, Glauber's salt. So sodium sulfate was also known as Glauber's salt. Um, in fact, he made glass that was so cool that it made its way to China in, in a very short time. So from, from Holland and kind of Central Europe, Western Europe, just shot all the way across the continent. And and I mean, this is already after the age of exploration and all that stuff. So um, sure, why not? But it is remarkable. Like it was a great success there and exported to there. And there's a lot more, but let me just backtrack a second and actually tell you about who he was first and his life a little bit. And again, so he was born in 1604 in Karlstadt am Main and was the son of a barber, came from a very big family, not wealthy enough or he didn't finish school. But eventually, it's thought at least that he studied pharmacy and visited laboratories, according to Glauber himself, not going to school and having 
experience at an early age, like in a pharmacy, ended up being a blessing. And so he lived in Vienna by 1625, and he kind of moved around. So I don't want to talk about each one, but I'll just give you the list. He ended up in Salzburg, Gießen, Wertheim, that's around 1650, and then Kitzingen a couple years after that, Basel in Switzerland, Paris, uh, Frankfurt am Main again, Cologne. So really kind of made the tour of Germany and then went on to Amsterdam. Um, and he actually lived a couple times in Amsterdam, and that's eventually where he died. He lived in Amsterdam from 1640 to 44, and then a, twice after that. And at first, in kind of earlier parts of his life, so first we have ex- his experience in a pharmacy as an apothecary. Um, for instance, in the court in Gießen. The second time as the chief apothecary leaving due to the Thirty Years' War. Now, once he was in Amsterdam... He built up a business manufacturing, first of all, pharmaceuticals, and this includes chemicals such as Glauber salt. So this is where that comes from. One reason I like Glauber is that he wasn't your typical alchemist that kind of ended up broke. This actually led to great financial success, but eventually, like so many other alchemists, in 1649 bankruptcy eventually, which is the reason for his move from Amsterdam to Wertheim. He was married twice had eight children. Now, what I liked about Glauber, and the reason he's kind of been on my list for a while, is that I like examples of uh, alchemists that have actually done real experiments and um, empirical works and drawn conclusion. And personally, I think it's really interesting when th- when it was something that was applicable, like something that they could apply and, and do something and then build something and sell something. So it, he definitely is an example of that. Pretty early in his life, he carried out some studies of the chemistry of wine production and then was able to kind of profit by this, by licensing these improvements, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so then when he was in the apothecary, he he did nice things like providing medical care to the poor and free of charge and that sort of thing. And the reason that the definition of what he is or what he does is so interesting because we see a man who furthers the field of chemistry, really, and he was able to live from the proceeds of his discoveries. And that really makes him uh, a chemist, like his profession was a chemist, which I think is interesting because he was born in 1604. And, you know, a century before Isaac Newton, for instance, which, you know, it's comparing apples and oranges, but still. So the engineer part of that is that he improved processes, equipment, methods, kind of, and kind of like Konrad Drebbel, again, also Dutch. We have people that like to figure things out and, you know, make things work. Through his experiments, he was the first to produce concentrated hydrochloric acid. He improved the process for manufacture of nitric acid in 1648. And basically what he did was he heated potassium nitrate with concentrated sulfuric acid, which, yeah, I guess made it faster, better, whatever, to create nitric acid. And then I mentioned Glauber salt already before, sodium sulfate. He called it sal mirabilis, like the wonderful salt. And that also brought him fame and, you know, the honor of it having kind of been nicknamed after him, like Glauber salt. And basically it was an effective and relatively safe laxative. That's what you can use sodium sulfate for. And this is at the time period, which is why this is such a big deal, because normally it maybe shouldn't be such a big deal. But uh, this was kind of a time when purging, like 
by which I mean like emptying the digestive tract was, you know, considered a, a healthy thing to do or even a treatment if you're sick. So Glauber, it's almost like it's it's a medicine. There you go. But these days, it's used all over the place. So, I mean, it is still really cool. Um, don't get me wrong. It's not just a laxative. The sodium sulfate is a salt. It's basically the sodium salt from sulfuric acid. And again, it's used in all kinds of processes. And he actually discovered sodium sulfate in Austrian spring water. So maybe that's kind of like the healthy mineral water. This, I don't know. And then here's another thing which... I might be getting like the actual exact chemicals confused, but I did something very similar to this in high school, I think. And this is, so Glauber's the first one that observed this, for instance, which is, it's called the chemical garden, like or silica garden. And it was described by him in 1646. And I wonder if, if you remember this or if you guys did this too, but in his form, the chemical garden involves introduction of ferrous chloride crystals into a solution of potassium silicate. And have you ever done that? I mean, I clearly remember, like, you put, like, I think the version that I knew was maybe something with silver nitrate, but really it involves some sort of molecule with, usually with a metal in it, and then some sort of solution, uh, maybe with some sort of acid in it, and then there's a chemical reaction, and what you get is a chemical garden. It's this weird, it almost looks like it's growing, and it could be crystals, and it could be different colors, and um, actually, you should probably just Google image search chemical garden and uh, we'll all save ourselves a lot of time here i mean i do recommend it it is it does look really cool and the list just keeps going because he was the first to synthesize and isolate antimony trichloride and arsenic trichloride tin tetrachloride and zinc chloride so he was again you know the discoverers of of all of these compounds maybe not the discoverer but he was actually able to isolate and synthesize them so that's that's chemistry definitely uh, in the you know mid 17th century but in addition to that he wrote 40 books and one that's kind of interesting um, and maybe is is obviously very forward looking uh, especially where he wrote it because he proposed in a work called Des Deutschlands Wohlfahrt, like Germany's Prosperity, but spelled a little bit off. He proposed a chemical industry or industries as the means, kind of Germany's way to get over and recover from the Thirty Years' War, which is pretty clever. And uh, Germany has definitely done that to get over wars before. So it, it's, it's pretty interesting. And the thing that he might actually be most famous for today, well, maybe besides Glauber's salt, is when he was in Amsterdam. He actually got to work in kind of making glass and, and this sort of thing. Don't forget, we are talking about an alchemist. Sure, it'd be great to talk about just a chemist in the 17th century, but he still kind of had something in mind. And part of this was finding the Philosopher's Stone. But because he was who he was, and he was very clever... He was really able to create his own equipment exactly the way he intended it and the way he wanted it to be. Um, so even in the history of alchemy, he's a fascinating person, just in the alchemical lab as well as, as chemistry itself. His most famous invention is really a synergy of that. It is, it is true chemistry, but of course, the motivation behind it is, in this case, definitely alchemical. And, I, and I'm just curious how... 
how often or how much that's, that's sometimes emphasized because um, this next thing, so in Amsterdam, he, he just his knowledge of the raw materials that it takes and then the way to purify everything. He really, when he tackled glass, he was really, really good at it in the end. And he can be credited with the invention of purple of Cassius, which is a solution of gold that led to the production of ruby red glass. And the concept of glass and gold go together for at least two that I can think of, but two very important reasons. The first one is the equipment in the lab. We've talked about this before, but alchemists needed a constant temperature for a very long time, and it was quite a hot temperature, which means the glass had to just be able to sit there for a month or more and take the heat very consistently. So sometimes, so then you started getting glass that was like thicker in the bottom and thinner on top, and um, a lot of modifications and improvements. And this is along those lines. The second one, the second connection between gold and glass, is that the Philosopher's Stone was often described, you know, again, a hundred different ways, but often it was described as potentially a red stone, and Sandivogius had a red powder, and everything I say, there's variations of, but but it's a red kind of stone that might sparkle or glimmer or might actually um, look a little bit like gold or something, but definitely it's a Philosopher's Stone. If you take some of it and put it in with the correct mixture, it everything will become gold, okay? Or even if you just put it with lesser metals, it will become gold. But just based off of the description, okay, a red, shiny, glittery stone, that basically looks a lot like if you just had a little ball or a little rock made out of gold ruby glass, okay? And that's the production of gold ruby glass that came from this purple of Cassius, which is from Glauber. Now, again, probably wasn't interested in making decorative glassware, There's no other indications that he was ever into that kind of stuff. And yet he influenced decorative glassware all the way from, I mean, basically Ireland to China. I mean, just he had a really huge influence here. And while Glauber took no active part in their achievements, he kind of provided the foundation upon which an industry of this gold ruby glass and and improvements in glass manufacture could then like flourish. And many, many people flourished and profited and blossomed because of him. So, but here's one example where he just didn't, that's not what he was after at all. So Glauber Salt made a money, gold ruby glass and, and that line of things didn't. And it wasn't even just the one industry that he spawned. The, the other one was kind of lead glass in England, which of course everybody's heard of. That was thanks to Glauber in the end also. So a lot of these things can kind of be traced back to this one person, as in directly. Like two years after Glauber's death, there was a glass house that stopped because of uh, you know trouble with the French. And when that happened, two of the owners, which were Italians actually by birth, they moved to England. So we know exactly you know how the lead glass kind of came to be in England. And only two years later, we have the first patent in England from George Ravencroft. But so two years before, some Italians that came from Amsterdam. And before that, we have Glauber himself, who died four years before the patent even. And then we have another example of a patent in Dublin by a guy named Odasio. The introduction of milk glass um, to Northern Europe, for instance, was one of Glauber's assistants that worked for him for 10 years, a guy named Kraft. 
and then he also had connections with other scientists and and alchemists and you know interesting persons in Germany. And Kraft was the guy with the secret glass-making knowledge that everybody envied and wondered about. And, and of course, it'd be silly for me to not mention the quite famous uh, industry, especially, I mean, it goes, well, this far back about, um, in southern Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, which is to this day very famous for its Bohemian crystal and all sorts of other styles of glass that are, some of them are very distinctive. I mean, if you see them, you say, oh, that's a you know Czech or Bohemian crystal this. And this also goes back to Kraft, who didn't only spread it to Northern Europe, but also to Southern Bohemia. And then eventually Vienna. Uh, there's crystal glassworks in Grazen. Grazen in Vienna might be traced back directly to him. Also in Dresden, he, he spent some time and set up another shop with a business partner there. I, I think it's interesting that you can draw lines back to Glauber, but I could go way off track here because his business partner in Dresden has a story. And, you know, there's a there's a bunch of people that knew of Glauber's inventions and would just take it to the next step and keep going. And interestingly enough, many alchemists in, in Europe, well, basically anybody that saw it, agreed that it was a step forward in the right direction, as in the Philosopher's Stone, what this gold ruby glass was. Because, you know, it is this shimmering, uh, almost phosphorescent, it's not, but it's, you know, very glittery, shiny, red material and a lot of alchemists did think that this was like, you know, a step. Okay, we almost, we almost got it. You know, we're very close. Just, just based on the, off the descriptions. For instance, we had a show on Johann Friedrich Böttger, who lived in the same sort of uh, time period. He actually died in 1719, so like 20 years before Glauber. And Böttger also was well known because he had this red tincture. So there's, you know, red tincture. We have the red glass. We have red powder from Sendivogius. In case you don't remember Butka, it, it was really interesting because the it was, he's the guy where the the Saxon prince like kidnapped him and made him make porcelain. Butka was the guy that you know brought the the knowledge of porcelain production to Europe. Before that, it was only in China, and so again, there's a whole show on it. You know, go listen if you're interested. But Butka also experimented with gold ruby glass, and according to an experiment, which again we mentioned on that show. He made two pieces of metal. One was gold and one was silver during an experiment in Dresden. And the reason we mentioned that experiment, well, okay, first of all, because Bertka did it and we talked about him, but it was the reason it was so cool is because, um, well, apparently also because he made gold and silver, which doesn't come up as often as you'd think on this show. Um, so that's something. He did it in front of King Augustus II of Poland and Prince Frederick Augustus I of Saxony. And the samples were then part of the Saxon prince's collections. Okay, but sorry, that was Böttger. Um, we're, we're talking about Glauber. So hope you don't get confused, but there, that's just interesting. That there is that connection there. And there, I mean, we come across this all the time, but uh, I like to point that out, actually. And also, sometimes you see works of, of glass, you know, works of art or something that might have multiple layers of glass in them, and it's pretty common. But Bertka was actually one of the first to do this with clear glass and ruby red glass and make interesting things that people had never really seen since Roman times, actually, more or less. You know, not maybe exactly the same, but this layered glass. That's one of the things that was kind of lost to Europe for at least a thousand years and then rediscovered, uh, in this case, by an alchemist. And that's called casing glass. This was so neat that two missionaries, actually, a Jesuit priest, Kilian Stumpf, and, a, and another Jesuit priest named Christoph Diem, 
like this so much that they learned how to do this uh, manufacturing for ruby red glass. And when they went on a mission to China in 1688, Stumpf then kind of organized a palace glassworks in Beijing. And one of the things that they produced there also was like telescope lenses, you know, for imperial observations. And so that 1888, this is like less than 20 years after his death and probably only a few years after that, this was starting to happen. So, you know, 20 years from his death, let's say 40 or 60 years from the invention, it made its way clear across the continent, both east and west. Now, Glauba, in 1660, towards the end of his life, he did become seriously ill, which probably from various heavy metals used in his work, and just kind of slowly over time got poisoning from this. That's not hard to imagine. In 1666, he was kind of, he ended up being sort of disabled from a fall from a wagon, and he basically never recovered from that. He ended up being confined to his bed for the rest of his life, and that was about four years before his death. So for four years, he was uh, confined to bed, basically. And then in the last four years, um, we do see him kind of running out of money and selling books and equipment to help out his family and that sort of thing. And eventually he died on the 16th of March in 1670. Even in his works and everything I described so far, in some ways I really just scratched the surface. So he had so many different interests than just the chemicals I described. He he really was an alchemist also in kind of the tradition of Paracelsus. He believed a lot of those things. His pharmaceutical work had a lot of, a lot of theories from Galen, which, well, that's not uncommon, I guess. But he also did a lot of other improvements, like, you know, well, I don't want to say lesser things, but like, you know, he improved the way like certain distillation stills, glass sieves, even just the implements that he made with glass, um, you know, like a, a, a thing that you can kind of cut liquids in half with, just basically a, you know, a flat plate of glass, you can then separate liquids, lots of little clever ideas around the, the lab, but even mirrors, explosives. Uh, dyes, even manure experiments with manure, for instance, malts extract. And, and you know, also when we talked at the very beginning about his wine production thing, so also, you know, he did to a lesser extent than, of course, with vinegar. And he also did some things with beer, which I, I, I am curious about. I didn't see anything else, you know, only only a couple of references really to, to his beer things, but wine was pretty common. So, you know, I wish I knew more on that end, actually, quite a bit. But Anyways, I, I hit the major ones, but with this guy, the list just goes on and on. You know, he's just always constantly a tinkerer and a finder and definitely a fun one to research. Again, don't forget to check out my new show, secret-cabinet.com. The Secret Cabinet is, you know, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's it's totally different than the other shows uh, in, in every way, even in strange ways, because I'm like interpreting it from German. So my whole brain power is concentrated on the language and even when I re-listen to it to edit, uh, I I don't remember saying the words. So um, I wonder if that's noticeable or not. I don't. I like. I, I definitely hear a difference. So, but anyways, go 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 listen to it. And uh, uh, I I have the same problem with history of Germany sometime. Or I don't know if it's a problem, but it's just it's I sound different to myself. Um, but yeah, anyways, go check that out. And this episode was edited by Messenger Boy Media. Go check out mboym.com for free music and other content. You definitely help me out by helping him out, so that's mboym.com. Thanks a lot for listening.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.